Hello, DocuPals. It is I, Bob Sham, the host of this podcast you're tuning into called The Documenteers. It's a parse through these documentaries and rate them to the end of time. And I'm very excited because this is the start. One week before the actual month, a month plus one week of all Herzog movies. Herzog month. I think I've been saying that he was born on the 3rd of September. According to Wikipedia, it's the 5th. And in this episode... We talk about a pretty serious one. We open up with a very serious one. Angela's on this episode. We kind of go back to the root of our intent when we were doing our Documenteers episodes to do true crime based. And this is Werner Herzog's Into the Abyss, his 2011 film where he goes and uh, talks to a young man on death row and talks to the families of the victims of this tragedy. And, And it's all about how it can just crack through an entire community like so she gets pretty serious and we act like armchair psychologists but we don't really have any credibility to back a lot of our presumptions up for those of you who've been listening to the show for quite a while you know that we have made a commitment that despite our lack of expertise in pretty much anything that does not stop us from throwing out wild assumptions on anything and that's a promise that we make to you Uh, Yeah, baby. Herzog month. Ooh, this week it's about a murder. Next week it's about volcanoes. And uh, throughout the next month, what are you going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about a long jump skier, an angry minister, uh, the internet. We're going to have so much fun. Volcanoes too. Everyone loves a good volcano, right? So yeah, please stay tuned. I'm not going to tell you to give us five stars and a review on iTunes. It would be great if you did. But I want to try to remember to do that at the end of the episode. I think it'll have more effect. After you hear us talk about something very sad and uh, and goof off with our silly shit at the same time. But enough of this. Let's get into this film. Start Herzog Month right the hell now. All right? With Into the Abyss. Bye. That's right. Our Dottie Werner Herzog. Keep on doc. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. No names on the crosses, only numbers. Why does God allow uh, capital punishment? I don't know the answer. film was shown on September 3rd, 2011, which September 3rd is Werner Herzog's birthday. What? This movie kicks off Herzog month. It starts in the last week of August, but that's to ensure that there is a Herzog movie available on the documenteers for every second of September feed when his birthday rolls around. I love it. Unless Wikipedia is wrong, which it never is. I'm sure Wikipedia has his birthday, right? Yeah, you'd think that might be pretty easy, but he he's a man of mystery. He is a man of mystery. He's also a man of very interesting questions. He has three kids. Did you know that? What? According to Wikipedia. Oh my gosh, I got the birthday thing wrong. Oh no, when's his birthday? September 5th. You failed. You have failed, and I can never look at you the same way again. <laughs> we start off, gosh, with a couple of uh, modern Herzog films. In this episode, Into the Abyss, it came out in 2011. Into the Abyss. Into the Abyss. Which, what is this about, Angela? 
it's hard to, it's about death row, but it's also about this one particular case and how the whole thing unfolded and how the people involved ended up in different places. One of them ended up on death row. And so it's a very interesting look at this case. It's a very interesting look at what it actually is like to be executed. And you also find out a lot about how Werner Herzog feels about execution. Yeah. (laughs) Very strongly from the very beginning. Because it's Herzog month, we'll probably be making the same points like for a month. Yeah, but ours are going to be first. So Ours will be first. We're the correct ones. But Herzog comes off very warm in this movie. He really does. I've always really liked him, but there's something about him in this movie. and, And maybe... From my original viewing of this is why I've always felt this way about him. I really feel like he's he's looking at the story from every angle, but he's also, he's extremely compassionate while also at the same time actively recognizing that something horrible, something horrible has happened and the people involved are not necessarily good people. I want to jump in because there's something he says pretty early on that I want to talk about, but I, we need we should get started. And this signifies... Kind of the modern Herzog era. Uh, In Herzog month, we're going to tackle like three of these. The modern era, I consider like post-Grizzly Man because Grizzly Man is... Turning point. (laughs) Werner's biggest. He's also made several feature films as well, Mm -hmm. which I've seen pretty much only as documentaries, and he has several of those, and I'm... He's been in at least one feature film that I can think of. He's been in more than one, but he was in Jack Ryan, which I love that movie, and he's a big part of why I love it. Jack Reacher? Jack Reacher, yeah. I get my uh, badass uh, mystery novelist characters. uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, he was in Julian Donkey Boy. I don't like the artsy-fartsy thing. I I think I hated his poem. He was the father, remember? Okay, I have only seen a fraction of Julian Donkey Boy because I tried to watch it alone when you were not home one day. Why don't you take the stress? Belong to your mom. Yeah. She wore it when we got married. Why don't you put it on? And I got so creeped out. Just put it on, Chris. Just put it on and dance with me. But I ended up going to our next door neighbor's house. You see, since your mother left, I've never danced. I'm going to give you $10. No, I've not finished it. Disturbing. I'm a huge Harmony Crin fan. I think he's brilliant, but that's one that I have not been able to make it all the way yeah, through. Yeah, that's. Uh, I got like motion sickness with that. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> Come on, Chris, 10 bucks. But, uh, well, a couple of movies we discuss in Herzog Month will be movies he shot for German television in the 70s. And I'm really excited to get to those. Maybe I should just watch those with you to see them because I don't think I've seen any of those. Well, I'm looking to tr- find a, a an English transcript for one because right. it's entirely in German and it's. Actually, a very historical one in Herzog's career. I should read you the transcript while you watch it so That's, that you can take notes. That sounds like fun. Maybe we'll have to record that. Drew will be doing that one. And he's weirdly excited about watching a movie that he will not <laughs> understand the words to. Backroom whispers. But, you know, doing this show has really kind of reinvigorated that film curiosity for me. Yeah. And it's not that I'm just watching our films. We watch like shit like Infinity War and Mission Impossible 6. And I, I like those movies too, you know? Those are all great movies. But this movie, Into the Abyss by Werner Herzog, A Tale of Death, A Tale of Life. 
We watch this on Netflix. Shout out to Netflix for having a lot of Herzog films, more than you would think. Yeah, they have at least six for Herzog The modern ones, for sure. And several more that he's produced. Mm-hmm. We open up on this movie talking to Reverend Richard Lopez. He's the death house chaplain at, what do they call that building? The The death house. It's the death house. It's the where you're house. taken when you are about to be executed. You're taken from wherever you're being held, to this death house, and that's where you spend your last 24 to 48 hours. That's where you get your, you put on your final outfit, you have your final meal, and it's where you ultimately are executed. And so this is a man who, his job is to be present for every execution. Werner said to him, like, what do you think about this person that you're about to meet? And he said that he truly, truly tries to enter into every interaction to meet every person without expectation. And his point then is that he wants to show them that God is forgiving. He wants to be there with them if they have anything they want to say, if they want to pray, if they want him to pray for them. Like he just wants to be there in whatever capacity they want him to be there. You're talking about how once he placed his his hand on a man's ankle. I think he does that if they will allow him to for everyone. Yeah. But that was just, yeah, he said, if if he'll allow me to, I'll place my hand on his ankle, like, at the time, so that the person's not alone. And even right then, like, I feel like I was crying Yeah. at the beginning of this episode because this man was crying. Like, this is truly someone who, I don't know how he sleeps at night. He's been present for, I can't remember how many he said, in the hundreds, or at least over 100 executions. What's interesting, when you meet people often in the form of a documentary, Mm-hmm. You meet people who work in this system, specifically the branch of prisons that do executions. These are people that are from the communities, often yeah. what you would call like red state communities or like counties where where you would generally label a lot of people to be very conservative types, maybe very pro-death penalty types. And I'm sure a lot of these guys kind of have that when they go in. But when they discuss their job, especially the ones that have been doing this for years and years, you can tell that the experience of doing it has affected them so profoundly. They have an experience towards it that a lot of the community does not have. And this guy, Werner, actually said to him, this is one where we hear Werner a lot. We don't see Werner in this. Just his voice. But we hear his voice. He is the exception to the rule. He is the one who you need to know what question he's asking because Werner asks such specific questions. It is definitely part of the experience of hearing what he is saying to these people. And he says to him, Why does God allow uh, capital punishment? And the man just says, I don't know the answer. He tells a story about how he plays golf and a horse wanders onto the golf course. It's a squirrel. How did I write horse on course? <laughs> I wrote a, horse on course. They talk about squirrels for like five minutes. <laughs> it's a squirrel encounter, but he does something to avoid the squirrel. Like he could have killed the squirrel accidentally. He like basically slammed on his brakes in this golf cart. And this little squirrel like stopped in front of him, just kind of looked at him for a minute. And in that moment, he just thought like, man, I just made a decision. I could have just kept going and just seen what happened. But I stopped. And so I didn't kill that squirrel. The Reverend Lopez, it haunts him that he cannot stop the process for these prisoners. Mm -hmm. Like the way he can stop a process out in the world to help a wild animal. And he breaks down and and he cries. He can't do anything for them at this point. There's no helping them turn their lives around in any sort of way that's going to make a difference to what's going to ultimately happen to them. Like, there's no changing that. He hates that he that he or someone else couldn't have intervened much, much, much earlier, mm. you know, to try to get them off that path that was going to lead to their death. We meet a boy 
name is Michael Perry. He is on death row. They do kind of show a little bit of death row right here. And I just wanted to make sure I mentioned this now because I don't I don't want to forget later. They show the death room kind of as they're talking and as they're starting to talk about Michael Perry, like right before we meet him. And the death room is painted green. And it's that kind of green that you'll see in like a hospital or even like a green room backstage at a theater. And that green is supposed to be the most calming color. Like a turquoise almost, right? Sort of. It's 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 a very warm, brighter green. And that's the room that this is painted. And it just it just struck me. It wasn't all gray and and dark. It was like this supposed to be calming color. Michael Perry's in the Polanski unit, and his execution is set for July 10th. And Werner offers condolences because his father passed away. Yeah, his father passed away just a few days prior. So his, his dad passed away before he is executed. Michael James Perry has been on death row for 10 years. Now, Michael... He's very eager to speak. He's a guy that has a lot of words. He feels like he has a lot of pent up energy. Like he's almost, he's like on the edge of his seat, like leaning forward all the time. Like he loves this attention of being asked these questions. He'll he'll answer Werner's questions, but he'll often like pad these questions with like extraneous things. Mm-hmm. And he's often citing the fact that he is a Christian and that this isn't the end of his eternity. He makes that comment at some point about how because he's going to heaven. Whether he dies or he gets released, he's either going home or he's going home. And he says he feels the weight every day, but he he, uh, leans on his faith. Now, Michael Perry, I mean, we'll talk more about how I feel about their frame of mind. Oh, sure. And who they are as people. And in my brain, I had misquoted Werner ever since the first time we watched this movie. In my brain, Werner tells the guy, I do not believe that the state should be executing people. But that does not mean I have to like you personally as a person. And I think I misappropriated that quote, almost like Werner was kind of putting him down real hard after he had said something. But it wasn't really like that. I wrote what he said. Go ahead. He said, I I have the feeling that destiny, uh, in a way, has dealt you a very bad deck of cards. It does not exonerate you. And, And when I talk to you, it does not necessarily mean that I have to like you. But I respect you and you are a human being and I think human beings should not be executed mm-hmm. as simply as that. Right. Or no government, whether it be local, state, or federal, should be executing people. No. No one can claim that our criminal justice system is perfect. It stands to reason that there are people sitting on death row that probably never committed any violent crime. And if even one person, and no one could deny that, surely one person in the history of this country has been executed for a crime they didn't commit. That's one person too much. Prison has several issues. We have nonviolent offenders being shoved in with violent offenders that is warping these people and they're making them worse yeah. by going into this process. We have these prisons where where guards and prison politics allow prisoners to segregate into like little racist pockets. Yeah. Which is a good way to get them to police each other, even though it creates an environment amongst the prisoners where they could suffer serious injury or death. There's so much wrong with our prison system. Prison reformation, for me personally, is the biggest issue. And one of the problems is not that cold-blooded murderers are, are spending too long in jail. We need to be reserving these prisons for crimes like this. Yes. Life in prison 
is a brutal enough sentence. No government should be executing anyone. Werner speaks on our behalf when he makes that claim. Boy, I could go on forever about that. And there's a lot of documentaries that make the case for prison reform and go into the details of how private prisons are so corrupt and how essentially we have systematic slavery existing within our prison system. If you got nothing in this world and you're stuck in a cycle of poverty and that poverty creates frustration, that creates violence, it is a web that is such a struggle to get out of. And you've got politicians and people in power who, especially in places like where we're talking here in East Texas, and there's also places like that here in Tennessee where we're from, where people in power, it's in their best interest to stifle education yeah, because it makes these a population easy to control and easy to manipulate their politics based on fear. You see it all the time, fear-based politics. Anyway, I'm not going to go any further okay. into that. <laughs> I think I've said enough, but there will be plenty of episodes where we where I go on my rant. We see crime scene footage. Yeah, this is, the, this is when we get into figuring out what happened and why Perry, who I think is how I refer to him in my notes moving forward, got on death row. What happened to lead him there? And so we they start talking about what happened and there was a body found floating in a pond and then it starts working backwards to how that body got there, what happened. There's this really disturbing image of the home because they eventually figure out who the person is, who the woman is that's floating in the pond. And so they go to her house and everything's been on for days. Lights have been on. There's food sitting out. She was in the process of making cookies. TV has been on for days. It's so eerie. It's it's as though she just vanished into thin air. And this is this house is very nice. This yes. is and this uh, we're in we're in East Texas. This murder took place on Conroe, Texas, forty miles north of Houston. These accents I hear these are not unlike accents that I heard growing up where I grew. Absolutely. Up. And where I grew up is forty miles west of Nashville. It's not too far off the environment that I grew up and mm-hmm. the environment these people are. But this is a very nice house. And these like semi-rural small town communities, it's if y'all have never driven through any countryside in any part of this country, it's there's a lot of economic depression in a lot of these places because most yeah. jobs are in cities. But it's interesting because you'll get like a trailer, a trailer, a shack, a trailer, and then you'll get a really nice house. Yeah, or you'll have like a whole like cul-de-sac of really nice houses. Yeah. And this was one of those houses. This was a very nice house in even Werner commented on it he's driving around with um someone from the sheriff's sheriff's office damon hall i believe was his name mm-hmm. he's kind of showing him what happened and he takes him to the neighborhood and they're standing outside this house and it appears safe it's quiet it looks safe the guy was like well i mean you would think that but the thing is is this was not a random crime sandra stotler is the victim's name this was her house she had a son and he and one of his friends adam were out for the evening Michael and Jason, who we haven't met yet, Michael and Jason came to the house together. Jason Burkett. We're going to meet Jason soon. But yeah, so Michael Perry and Jason Burkett show up at Sandra's house looking for her son Adam and his friend. And she let Burkett use the phone. Apparently their plan, according to the police, so everyone has a different story in this case. But according to the police, the plan was that they were going to go there and convince the boys to like take the car with them. Or they were going to get them to take their mom's fancy car and then they were going to get it from them somehow. They use the phone, they leave, but then they decide, no, we want that car. 
Yeah. So instead of just trying to trick her son into like giving him the keys or like helping them take it, they decide to go back and kill her for it. Well, based upon what Damon Hall stated, the man from the sheriff's department, Perry was snuck in while Burkett was distracting Sandra, and he popped out of the garage when he when she went to go get something, and he shot her point blank with a shotgun. Yeah, as things are being described, we also see the panning footage of the crime scene. There's not oh, there's not any because Sandra is not in the house. They took her out, but we see the aftermath of it. There's a lot of blood. They show the garage where the car was. They say that the boys, after killing her, wrapped her in a blanket and took her to a lake and dumped her in their car. At Crater Lake. And they show again, Werner's not afraid to stay on a scene. And this was this was a little disturbing because it actually showed the blankets in the water. It showed her. You didn't get a clear picture, but it was enough that it was a little disturbing. And the music playing is intense. I didn't even notice that, but I guess it, I'm sure it led to the anxiety I was feeling while looking at these images. Werner asks Damon at this point, well, were they on drugs? Why do they do this? And he says there were no, there was no indication of drugs used at all. They just wanted this car. He's in like a closed off community. Literally everything that is happening, and we're not done with the crimes. No, no, no. Literally everything that happens is over a car. Their plan was to go back and get the car. And they get there. The gate is closed on this gated community. So instead of just like, I don't know, jumping the fence or sneaking in behind someone else who arrives home. Because they wanted to get the car out. Yeah. They can't get into the gate. So they waited until Sandra's son, Adam, and his friend yeah. returned. They showed up, Adam and Jeremy, to get the code to get to get the car. Instead of just saying to them like, hey, let's hang out. Let's come over to the house. They decided to tell the boys, hey, come into the woods with us. We want to show you something. They get these two young men into the woods and proceed to kill them. They straight up execute these two boys. All for the fucking clicker to open the gate to get in to get the car. They kill two more people. This is when we kind of, they kind of jump forward a little bit in the story to give us the information that Perry did confess to yeah. having killed the boys. There's a shootout later that we'll get into more when they actually talk about it, but they do mention at this point that there wasn't a shootout ultimately with the cops when Perry was arrested and in the ambulance, he confessed to killing the boys, which is why they know the details of what happened with the boys. There, he did confess to that. And there are also witnesses that claim that Perry was openly bragging about murdering people to get this car. Yeah, apparently he did. They ran their mouths. And it's not hard to believe considering when we see Michael Perry speak, like I said, he's answering questions, but he's padding a lot with unnecessary sentences. He wants this, attention. This kid runs his fucking mouth. This is when we go to Lisa, who is Adam's sister. Lisa is the, the oldest sibling in the family, and she's not living at home at this time, but as you can imagine, she's pretty much broken by the fact that her brother and her mother have been killed along with her brother's childhood friend. And then she tells this story, kind of the first story that she tells is about how when she found out that there had been a shootout, that her brother was involved. Basically, what happened was her mother had been found murdered. But no one knew where the boys were. No one knew where Adam and Jeremy were. And then there was this police shootout with her brother's car, because apparently her brother's car was also involved in this at this point. And so 
she was told that her brother's car had been found or she saw it on the news. She goes there and someone says, oh, yeah, your brother's at the hospital. He's been shot. Yeah. At this point, she rushes. She's like calling all the hospitals. She rushes to the hospital. She describes her brother. And the nurse is like, that's not the kid we have. They find out that Perry was using Adam's ID to drive around in Adam's car, basically pretending like he was Adam. So he was telling the police that he was Adam. So this woman not only lost her mother and then her brother was missing, but then she for a moment thought her brother was okay, only to then find out that the boy she thought was her brother actually murdered her brother yeah. and his best friend. And he's carrying around his ID, using it. He doesn't look like the kid. No, not at all. At that point, Perry had admitted what happened, but obviously not everyone was caught up to speed. So he admitted it, and they found the boy's. They also confirmed that it was definitely Perry because there were cigarette butts at the scene. So Adam had been shot in the spot, execution style, as you mentioned. But then Jeremy had run. And so they found him a little ways later. Um, But where Adam had fallen, there was actually a cigarette butt under his body that had Perry's DNA on it. So it was 100%. In the footage, Werner goes out there with the sheriff in that spot. Oh, yeah. Where Adam's body had been found. Also, Perry told the police where the bodies were because the police at that point did not know where they were. The police might not have found these bodies for a long time if Perry hadn't told them exactly where they were. uh, But there's a house that's built there now and where the the, uh, driveway is paved is apparently exactly where Adam's body was found. This is when we meet Jeremy's brother, Charles. This is a person who lives in this every day. Like Lisa, too. Like these people are basically prisoners of their own thoughts about what happened to their brothers. They're also prisoners of the cyclical nature of their depressed environments. get a lot of testimony, a lot of people who loved these people who passed away in this movie. And their lives are not without their own troubles. Absolutely not. Charles talks about how when Jeremy died, their father was in prison for murder. He was on bail Charles himself, and when he flew to the funeral, there were cops waiting to pick him up at the airport because he had jumped gone. Yeah, and his own grandfather would not talk to him to let him know that his brother had died. Yeah, his own grandfather wouldn't talk to him. His aunt had to tell him everything. At this point, Werner asked him about these two teardrop tattoos that he has on his face. Uh, I lost my my brother and my sister. The brother murdered your sister. What happened to her? Uh, she was coming to my house. And uh, she crossed the freeway. And she got ran over by a car. This is just a family riddled with, like, bad luck. Jeremy shouldn't have been in there where he was that night. He was just hanging out with his friend. This kid could could not have seen more tragedy in his life at this point. Charles alludes at this point that he maybe... The reason that he was in trouble with the law at that point was because he had taken the blame for Jeremy having some drug issues, took the blame for him on a crime. Uh, But he does talk about extreme guilt because Charles apparently introduced Jeremy to the people who killed him. So I'm assuming that means he introduced them to Jason and Michael. Charles held up two pictures of Jeremy at certain ages in his youth. One where he's wearing a Pantera shirt that Charles would... Later say that he had hung up on his wall. He talked about how he got in trouble. Jeremy would get in trouble for making people laugh. He was like a, a troublemaker, but not a super bad kid. But he's, you know, he's probably some good old boy out there getting drunk, smoking weed all the time like good old boys do. Yeah, and maybe he got caught with some weed at some point and his older brother who 
really had done some stuff was like, oh, no, no, it was mine. And Charles says that everyone told him after Jeremy's death that they were shocked that it was Jeremy and not him who was dead before the age of 21. And you could tell when he said that, and he, he feels that too. He feels the same way. He would take his place if he could. And this is when we meet Jason Aaron Burkett. Jason Burkett, he pleads out. He's not on death row. Right. But he gets a life sentence, but his guilty plea, it allows him to be eligible for parole within 10 to 15 years. Because what he pled to was not all of it, right? He right. blames Michael Perry for most of it. He says he was there and involved, but that he didn't do it. And when they talk to Michael Perry, the word God's not far from Michael Perry's lips. Yeah. But he also denies the murder action of his role in it. Yeah, neither one of them will claim that they did it. They blame each other for the murder of all those people. And the cops say they did it together, which is what I personally believe. I believe it too. Now, when we say that we are against the death penalty, that's not the same thing is saying that well i wouldn't blame anyone for having any compassion for any for anybody right but that i believe that both of these men are stone cold fucking killers yes are complicit in the murders of this neither of them from what i can tell seem any bit remorseful they do not seem to show any measure of remorse. No, because that would go against them saying that they didn't really do it. Michael Perry, he brings up God a lot when, it's, when there's a lot of like, did you do this? Did you do this? These boys, background of poverty, no doubt. They probably didn't have much going on. They have, especially Michael, they display, now I'm not like a psychologist, but they appear to display sociopathic behavior. Michael's about to die. Just confess, but there's something in his brain that thinks that he can talk everyone into liking him, into to latching onto his faith mm -hmm. and his sanctimony. And that's kind of what a sociopath does, even to the bitter end. Yeah, he might be a sociopath. They might both be sociopaths. But I also feel like in Michael's instance especially, there's a measure of just straight delusion. He's the kind of person who has talked himself into believing whatever narrative he believes, I think. He's never going to see himself as someone who, nothing is ever his fault. Nothing's ever going to be his fault. And yes. we know people like this. I don't even know that he is outwardly manipulative. It's almost as though he's just completely delusional as to what the truth is. And he believes it. He wants you to believe it too, but I, I just feel that he believes it. Yeah. I think he's crazy. But when people go to jail and they've done these horrible acts, they always lean on religion. They always utilize religion as an excuse to deflect any actions that they've done. Mm -hmm. It's such a common trope. And, almost, and I'm not a religious person. I'm not. There might be a part of me that it is, that feels bitter and angry that they would use that to kind of deflect from their own crimes. And we do have religious people that listen to this show i mean yeah to varying degrees i mean if you're if you're super evangelical you've probably had some issues yeah listening to our show you probably unsubscribed by now but uh but yeah there are plenty of people that listen that have a belief system i don't want people to think that i'm putting that down i have my own thoughts on it yeah but that's not really what this show's about unless we talk about a documentary where that's about so. sure and, and just I understand what you mean, though. There's nothing wrong with having a belief system. What is wrong is when you use that belief system to justify terrible things that you have done. 
and or deny the fact that maybe you made a wrong decision that led you to a place like that whole like everything happens. I have a really hard problem with everything happens for a reason and everything's meant to be. Yeah. I don't believe that. There's so many terrible things that happen that there's no way that that is the thing that's supposed to happen. Have you ever met an older biker that I don't think so. <laughs> sure you have. You never met like an older biker who talks about Jesus like it's all on his lips all the time and he references that he used to be so troubled and have a bad life until he found the Lord. The bikers that talk about Jesus a lot, guarantee you, they did some of the worst fucking shit. Yeah, but now they've all they're all forgiven. But now they're older. It seems like when people get older they get more scared. Yeah, because you start thinking about death and reflecting on what you've done in your life. And if you're regretful for those things, you do want some measure of feeling like you're okay or that you're somehow forgiven or that you are absolved. If you were in your past a thoughtlessly violent person and you get older and you start to get scared, what is there for you to pad those dark emotions down and give you any semblance of hope? Organized religion. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's move along. Let's move on. So Jason Aaron Burkett starts talking about how he got caught. So as we mentioned, he was found guilty, but he got life in prison. What happened is he says the day that they got caught, the day of the shootout, that it was him and Michael and another guy in the car. This is the first we've heard of this other guy. We don't know who this is. He says he doesn't either. And in asking him why he behaved the way he did on the day of the shootout is he says that when he was shot... He drove away. At that point, all he could think was, I've been shot. I need to get myself and my friend out of this situation. He apparently crashed. He was driving the car. This is um, Adam's car. He crashed into a building. He had been shot. His blood was everywhere. That's his excuse for why his blood was on the car, why his blood was on the weapon, why his blood was everywhere is because he'd gotten shot in the car. That's why he says. He says that's how his DNA got everywhere. He does talk about helping Michael Perry get out of the car and then like trying to run into a building, shooting back at the police. He basically says that all of his actions that day were not because he was guilty. They were basically fight or flight. He was just trying to stay alive when he apparently did not understand what was happening. Apparently. 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 Because apparently. Uh, Jason Burkett <laughs> gives a little bit of advice uh, in light of the fact that he might be in jail for the rest of his life. And that advice, Angela, is to cherish every minute. We speak to Jared Tauber. And Jared is, uh, he's a good old boy with a... With a cap on. I love him. He's got a background and environment that's not so different from where Michael Perry and Jason Burke. He knew them. He knew them. Yeah. He's from the same place they are from the same town. He talks about an experience he had with Jason Burkett. Well, he referenced him as a guy who wanted to fight him. And Jared, when confronted with the fight, these good old boys, they can't be shown down. It's like... It's like yeah. violent high school in these environments. Yeah, you have to respond or it's never going to stop. As an adult, I'm a non I'm not a violent person at all. I haven't been in a fight since I was a kid, but up until like my freshman year of high school, I fought constantly in these rural environments. It was it would just happen quite a bit. And yeah, I got I had to punch and got my ass beat and had to beat ass so much. For young boys in these nowhere environments, it's kind of tooth and claw. That's crazy. I, it's so hard for me to imagine. I know it's true, but it's so hard for me to imagine. I'm lucky. Yeah. In where I'm at now. And a lot of other kids like Jared and 
such they just got swept up more into it than I ever did. He talks about this fight. So he's been challenged. And so he goes out to respond, right? And he's taking his shirt off and he has his shirt kind of pulled up half over his head and he gets stabbed in the armpit with a foot long screwdriver. All the way through up to the hilt. If you imagine the screwdriver in under his armpit going straight across his chest, which you would think would have punctured a lung or gone through his heart or whatever. But this guy is such a badass who didn't want to be late for work that he just... Kept on with his day. He had. To, he never went to the hospital. He never. had a roofing job that he had to go to. He had. He couldn't be late. This roofing job he went to with Chris Burkett, who is Jason Burkett's brother. He said there was a little blood and pus, but he just kept on a moving. And I think Werner said something about how he must be lucky. Jared's a working man. He's got a girlfriend with the name Bailey tattooed. Werner says, well, what if you ever break up with Bailey? And he goes, I guess I'd have to put Bailey sucks right there. <laughs> Which made me laugh very hard. He does talk about it, Tom. He talks about Jason as being sort of a loose cannon and how Jason came after him once with a gun over a girl. Yeah. And they got into a pretty intense fight and the gun went off, but it misfired. They fought for hours. Yeah, this it is was how, insane. This is the story. They used to go hunting together. He, he knows them. And Jason Burkett came at him with a gun over a girl, like you said, and they fought. And the way he describes it, this wasn't like most fights that go quick. They were fighting for a long period of time. And then he's in a back room and he and Jason Burkett is locked out and he's about to kick down the door. Jared decides to let Jason in because he didn't want this girl's house to be completely demolished. He lets Jason in, who has a gun. Mm-hmm. Then they fight some more. Jason struggles, gets the gun up to his head, pulls the trigger, misfire. Again, this man is a lucky man. Jared says that him killing those people that... He feels sorry for those families. And he recalls seeing Burkett with Sandra's car. He said he saw them after the murders and they tried to tell him that they won the lottery. This is not the first time we'll hear this story, but, or this is not the last time, but they tell Jared that the reason they got the car is because they won the lottery. I speak to a woman, a bar employee. Who, At the cut and shoot. Who uh, testifies to joyriding in that same car. She didn't know what was going on, but she clarifies like, not just in this situation, that working in a bar up in Conroe, Texas, she's mm. seen so much fucked up shit. This is another moment where Werner just keeps the camera rolling. And this girl has some, she's dealt with some shit. Yeah. And she actually says, she's like, I just push it down. I just keep pushing it down. And by any measure, she doesn't, she looks like a normal girl. The other connection with her, I believe, if I have this correct, is that... Jason had met Perry through a friend who I believe was her friend. Uh, Perry had been homeless and Jason took care of him. We'll hear more about this later, but Perry had been homeless. This girl's friend had been kind of giving him a place to stay. And then she eventually was like, Jason, I need you to come and take this guy and, and get him out of my living out of my car. Werner's talking to Jared and it's revealed that, and this is my favorite part of this movie. Uh, Jared reveals in conversation that, at least at the time of these murders, that he could not read. Oh, yes. He can now. He learned how to read in jail. But at the time of the murders, he couldn't read. Gosh, literacy is something that a lot of people take for granted. Yeah. And it's kind of hard for a lot of us to wrap our heads around the fact that there might still be people out there in the world who don't know how to read. Mm -hmm. and, and you could imagine that when you're suddenly encountered with someone who reveals themselves as not knowing how to read, like, what would the reaction of it be? Probably like flabbergasted but or pity. But Werner, when he hears that, 
He congratulates him. Wonderful, yes. I find this a great achievement. Yeah, it's awesome. Not only does he congratulate him, and you can tell that Jared really appreciates that. Werner compliments his intelligence on being able to navigate a world without knowing how to read. How does it feel not to be able to read? You have to be much smarter than the others to understand the world anyway. Yeah, it's, it's kind of tough out there when you can't read, but I mean, because they ain't always there, somebody gonna read it for you. Now, like I said, I grew up in environments that are not unlike Conroe. And I remember dealing with what I saw as just frustrations from an environment that seemed to be willfully ignorant a lot of the time. And that seemed to maybe be threatened by the most basic displays of intelligence. And it's very hard to navigate these environments. But because of that, the cycle of bitterness, I got wrapped up in that bitterness. To see Werner just show some respect to somebody that a lot of people would just dismiss mm -hmm. as like a garbage redneck. But to see Werner just like lift him up. Yeah. And you know this guy does not get that often in his life. Does not get lifted up like that. And it made me think about my past and how in my own bitterness that maybe I should have lifted up some people around me. How I could have been nicer to certain people. But I was just bitter at the reactions of the way the environment was treating me. It really struck me. Yeah. Really struck me that scene. I mean, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And you are doing good now. Oh yeah, staying busy at the paint body shop. Reading? Oh yeah. Writing? Uh, not much writing, uh, a lot of sanding. Well, let's move on to the, the depraved uh, acts. We talked to Burkett again. He tells the story of meeting Perry through a girl, as you stated. Now, when he describes encountering Michael Perry, who had been living in a trunk, Jason is building this up like he's a man of great charity to let this poor rapscallion hillbilly kid come live with him at his uh, mobile home. Real quick, I had only a tiny note about this. There was an entire story that Perry was telling that was just... It gets to where it's a little hard to listen to him talk. Yeah. But the reason he ended up homeless is because he actually didn't come from that depraved of a society. Like, he was, like, okay. And he had, like, parents that cared about him from what I could tell. But he was a bad kid and he got in trouble all the time. And he'd been sent on one of those outward bound trips. And he just didn't want to be there. Yeah. Like, he didn't listen to instructions. He didn't want to listen to instructions. He didn't want to do what anybody said. And he basically ran away from the outward bound trip, and that's why he became homeless. Yeah. And Burkett said that he didn't know that uh, Michael came from good family. Right. He thought... I'm not sure. Now, to Jason Burkett, the idea of what makes a good family could have a, a very low ceiling. I mean, your dad's not in jail. That's an okay family. Yeah. that You, you know? know? I mean, truly, in this case, like, you have two parents, or at least the one parent you have is not in prison or on on like probation like you're probably doing okay but yeah we don't really know that much detail on michael's no. family background is no. all i'm saying but yeah you're right perry he's a michael perry he's a babble mouth uh, he talks about a canoeing trip how he doesn't like nature and how he was attacked by monkeys in florida yeah something about some stupid monkey attack but then there are wild monkeys in florida we've seen them we have they're scary but just stay keep your distance they just got they were dumped off from like an old film like a tarzan film from like yeah and then they just started ago. breeding and, and now they're, they're crazy so yeah now we're in part three what's part three called time and emptiness 
This is again with Jason. His possible release, the first time he could possibly ever be released is 2041. He'll be 59 or 60 years old at that point. Uh, Burkett says he was born with neuroplastoma and that his father, who is also locked up pretty much for the rest of his life, had testified for the jury to not execute his son. And his father's name, Delbert Burkett. Yes. He was never there for his kid. Delbert fully acknowledges that he was a complete garbage shit father and that his son probably would not be in this position if he had been any bit remotely a man. Yeah, he's actually in a prison across the street from Jason, serving his fifth time in jail, now on a 40-year sentence. He's not going to live that long. Werner asks him what went wrong, and Delbert responds, drugs and alcohol. There's some drugs you can do and probably be okay, and there's some drugs you should never touch if you ever want to have a productive life. Um, He talks about when he testified that he testified that he was never there for his son, that his wife was a single, basically a single mother with a disability, raising four kids. They lived in HUD housing. And he fully feels, truly believes that it is completely his fault that his son is in jail right now. He might not be wrong. I don't disagree with him. But the jury heard him and they gave him just a life sentence. This is another one of those difficult moments where Werner says to him, like, what did it feel like? to be sitting there testifying for your son to not be executed. Apparently right after this and after they won, he and his two sons, both of whom were in prison, so Jason's brother in prison also, they got to have a meal together. They got to have like a Thanksgiving dinner together. And Werner says, how did that feel to just have testified to save your son and then to have both your sons here with you in the prison? And his dad was like, I'm a complete failure. Delbert said that his sons thought They were charmed by it. Like, look, we're all together. Because they'd never fucking had that before. But Delbert was, like, deeply ashamed. Yeah, as he should be. Listen, I, again, like, this man is a man who has realized that he has done things that are wrong. And so there is a bit of compassion that you feel towards him. There's compassion to be had for people who are in a situation where they cannot change it, but they know they fucked up. And I do feel like he's one of those people. But in no way does that make anything that he ever did okay or the fact that he wasn't there for his kids okay. Sandra's car is still in the impound all these years later. It's yeah, we ten, get to see it. Ten years after the point of this murder. It's a car that three people died for. A tree had rooted into the car. It's interesting how nature attempts to take over the things we make. But we talked to the sister again, Lisa. She talks about how she basically completely shut down after her mother and brother were killed and talks about how she tries to live for her kids for her kids because she has children she had children when this happened she also explains at this point the age difference between between the two of them because adam was much younger because he was really truly her nephew her sister had given birth to him when she was 16 and the grandparents had adopted him so he was sort of i mean he was sandra's grandson that she was raising as her son and lisa was his aunt lisa was his aunt but Because of all that as well, she had also felt very protective of him. Apparently, her parents had been out of town when he was actually born. And so she was one of the first people to ever hold him. And she had always just felt a really strong bond with him and always thought of him as her baby brother. She's afraid of a ringing phone because the phone only brings bad news. And she fully acknowledges that her life feels empty. Part four, a glimmer of hope. We talked to Delbert again. Werner asks him, How would you raise your children if you could do it over? Hmm. And Delbert reveals that he actually had a football scholarship to the University of Texas, but he left high school his senior year. 
Can you imagine? I don't even know. need to know exactly where. I don't know if Delbert grew up in Conroe. He had something that could have gotten him out. Yeah. He had something that could have changed his life. And he made it up to his senior fucking year and bailed. That senioritis must have been real hard. You know, I was barely there my senior year. I couldn't, could not wait to get the fuck out of there. We talked to a lady. Yes. As a... Stuart loves it when I say this. A real winner. Miss Melissa Burkett. That's right. Her last name is Burkett. That's not Jason's uh, sister. No, no, no. This is Jason's wife. Now, she acknowledges that Jason's no saint, but he had nothing to do with those deaths. She was not married to Jason when these acts were committed. Because remember, Jason was living in like a, a trailer. He was with, like 16 years old. With Michael. Yeah. Was he that young? They were like 15 and 16. So they were sentenced as teenagers? Wait, can that even be right? I mean, it's Texas, so killing, executing kids, I wouldn't say it's above them. But. Maybe they were older than that. Maybe I had that fact wrong. But they were definitely not married. He didn't even know her at that point. So she had, when, after he had gotten into prison, she'd been writing him for like two years. This is her story. This is their little their little meeting story. The, um, uh, the meet cute? The meet cute. I almost said that and I stopped myself. Yeah, this is their meet cute. Hey, listeners, I hope you love romance. <laughs> Here we go. They'd been writing for two years and she was working on his case. I don't know how she originally got his information to write him, but she she just she wanted to be involved and she was writing him and asking him over and over again, well, did you do this? What exactly happened? And she was also talking to his mother at this point. So she had already like gotten to know his family and his mother told her that Jason had said to his mom that he loved Melissa. And so Melissa decided to get in the car, crazy astronaut style, and drive two straight days, two days and two nights, to meet Jason. Make him tell her that he loved her. She apparently showed up and was a little coy, like, he was like, why are you here? <laughs> you know why I'm here. <laughs> why do you think I'm here? She wouldn't say it first. And he eventually told her, like, I love you. And then she left. She still wouldn't say it. <laughs> Just needed to be sure because I'm not that girl that falls in love with an inmate. <laughs> <laughs> but to which she... I'm pretty sure I screamed at her. Yes, yes, you, you are. are. <laughs> but you know, but what signifies that that love is true? Oh man! So as she was leaving, oh my god, the prison. No girl. She had a friend who had, I guess, driven with her, and so that person saw this too. So they can tell you this really, really happened because they saw it too. It got right outside the gate, and she saw a rainbow going from outside the gate. Oh my god! To inside the gate at the prison. <laughs> And she couldn't confirm this until she got her next letter from Jason. But she saw that rainbow going from the inside to the outside. And wow. he saw that rainbow going from the outside to the inside. Oh my God. And that was a sign. True love. True love. I wish our story was as romantic as this one. <laughs> See the rainbow? <laughs> we leave Melissa for a bit. We go back to Perry. Maybe you can enlighten me on what he was talking about. All I wrote was, Perry is insane. He talks about how he doesn't pay attention to these walls because if he focused on it, he would lose his mind. I think this is just where it struck me, like how crazy his eyes look. I'm totally projecting here as the viewer, but his eyes seem cold. There's some level of self-delusion going on here. 
He does talk about his execution as a murder. He basically talks about how he didn't do anything, but now these people are going to murder him. In, in eight days, Texas wants to murder me. You don't want to be in Texas. You might want to get out of here. You could just get pulled over and they'll try to murder you for it. It's like Werner said. I don't like this motherfucker, but I don't think any government should be executing him. Are you ready for part five? Protocol of death. This is where we meet Fred Allen, and I love this man. He's a former worker at the death house, and he says to us, listen, I'm going to tell you exactly, exactly all the steps. Starting at four o'clock, you fingerprint the person, they take a shower, and they get to put on their free work clothes, which basically means their street clothes. Yeah. They get to just have a regular outfit. So like a FUBU shirt on a redneck white boy. Jinkos. Yeah. From 5 to 6 p.m., you get your last meal, and you pretty much get whatever you need as long as it's within reason. He did say the craziest request once was someone asked for, I guess they asked for a joint. And they were like, no, you can't have that. (laughs) I've heard that Texas no longer does the last meal that you just eat whatever they make or whatever is available in that option. Because I forget who it was. Some fucking serial killer psycho ordered like tons of shit and didn't touch any of it. Mm. So their reaction probably brought on by a bitter sheriff and like some politicians trying to be hard on crime banned the the last meal at least to the extent that you could get anything you wanted they kind of have a menu now maybe yeah so Mm. that doesn't even exist anymore wow then he talks about when the inmate is brought into the room they basically have two officers in front and three behind the person and they walk in all together so that after the person gets on the gurney uh the two officers in the front strap in their legs two of the three officers in the back strap in their arms the fifth person is there just in case they need to hold the person down. If the person tries to fight back, they might need to hold them down at their head and shoulders. He said, though, that this strapping in is 15 seconds long. They've done it so much, they know exactly what they need to do that it is like clockwork. And then um, and then he, he jumps to after the execution. He doesn't talk specifics about what actually happens um, with the injection, but he does talk about how after the execution, the doctor comes in and everybody else leaves. But then he was the one who would go back in after everything was over. So the doctor would come in and pronounce the person dead. All of the uh, workers would leave. But then he would have to go back in once everything was over and remove the straps and put them on the funeral gurney. This is where my number of 100 plus came. I thought this was with the the reverend earlier, but this captain did 125 plus executions. And sometimes twice a week, yeah. Yeah, sometimes twice a week. It really, really, really started to wear on him. And he talks about the woman. Do you remember what he said about the woman? There's a female inmate. She's up for execution. This is the first female inmate he's had, I believe. And she looks at him before she goes off to be executed. And this stuck with him. She says to him, thanks, Captain, for everything you've done. He goes through it as he does because he's just doing his job. And he sees a news report on it later. And he said it triggers him and he begins to shake uncontrollably. And he talks to the chaplain and he talks to his wife and he's like, I can't go back. This is a guy who's overseen the deaths of well over 100 people. Yeah. And it took that lady thanking him for all everything he's done, essentially thanking him for helping to aid in her execution. And he can't take it anymore. He says that before her, he used to say... If execution is legal, 
then I'll make sure it's done correctly. That was his position. You kind of talked about this earlier, like people who are in these communities where this is what happens, they kind of just have to accept that it's what happens. And so his thing was, is, you know, if it's going to be what's going to happen, I'm going to be the one to make sure it's done right. That it's mm. the people are taken care of, that things happen where they're supposed to. But now after her, he says no one has a right to take a life. That woman's name was Carla Fay. Yeah, she apparently had killed two people during a, a robbery. In Texas. This is when we go back to Lisa, Adam's sister, and we find out that she actually attended the execution. So the execution went as planned. There was no stay. Uh, Michael Perry was executed on the day he was scheduled to be executed. She said she felt like she could take a deep breath after it occurred. But she talks about how she saw that he was just a boy and that he looked at her and did like a double take, apparently. Mm -hmm. Talked about how Michael had forgiven them for executing him. Yeah, it was as though she was really upset and kind of shaking and nervous. But then when he made the statement that he forgave all of them for this happening to him, it sort of flipped a switch in her to where she no longer felt bad. It was almost like she realized that he had no remorse. She talks about how he heard Michael's mother cry, mm. saw him gasp for air four times. By 614, he was dead. She said she saw one tear fall by the side of his face. Now, the drugs that they use, at least during this time, and there's been some debate regarding the use of execution drugs lately. Uh, a lot of certain drugs have been running out. Yeah. And there's been some debate whether this constitutes as cruel and unusual punishment. But the drugs that are used in lethal execution are sodium thiopental. I might say these wrong, which is used to induce unconsciousness. I think there's some debate whether that works often or sure. a lot. And then they use pancuronium bromide, pavulon, which is to call muscle paralysis and respiratory arrest. And potassium chloride, which is used to stop the heart. Now, pavulon, which causes muscle paralysis and respiratory arrest, I think that's the part of the drug that is debated to whether or not to be cruel and unusual because it causes respiratory arrest. Mm -hmm. Essentially, your all your muscles are paralyzed, so you can't scream out or say anything, but you're essentially drowning in yourself, basically, because your your lungs aren't working. Right. It seemed like he was just in an act of suffocation. I can imagine that's incredibly terrifying. It took nine minutes. And then the potassium chloride stops the heart. Nine minutes is a long- A long time. If a, you're drowning- a, It's a long time for your lungs and muscles to not work. I don't recall what made him say this, but I wrote down that Werner Herzog said Jesus would probably not have been an advocate. Because death penalty sounds a little bit too much like Old Testament, the wrath of God. And and Jesus uh, probably would not have been an advocate of probably capital not. punishment. Probably not. And Lisa's like, well, uh, no, probably not. But But some people just don't deserve to live. During this interview, Lisa had said that she felt like some there was some kind of relief overseeing his death. The monstrous act committed by Michael Perry and Jason Birkin, who we both believe is complicit in this act. Right. They're both murderers in our eyes. That she got joy over his death. His monstrous act left something inside her that was a little bit of a monster itself. She, in that moment, is more than willing to just push that faith aside. What she knows the teachings of Jesus that she knows and acknowledges to Werner that she knows that Jesus would not approve of this, that she pushed that faith aside for the satisfaction of watching a boy die. A boy 
who killed her mother and her brother and his best friend, Mm -hmm. who it's not hard to imagine why she would want to see this boy die. But that's what Michael Perry and Jason Burkett took from her. They took that compassion away from her. They took from her the faith that could feel that compassion. Right. The satisfaction she gets from his death is a part of the emptiness that he left inside of her. And this idea that she that there's any real satisfaction, she might have just been, I don't want to, you know, Lisa's lost a lot mm-hmm. in her life. I, I understand her anger, but I don't think she realized, at least during the time of this interview, she knew that her mother and brother was gone. She knew that her life had been empty since they'd been gone. But that emptiness, that didn't change when Michael left this world. If anything, the way she described the satisfaction of seeing his death, that hole inside of her is probably even deeper than she even realized. It's it's the whole two wrongs don't make a right. It's she believes he doesn't deserve to live because her brother can't live, but that doesn't one doesn't cancel out the other. One doesn't make the other one happen again. Like what happened to her brother was terrible and awful and shouldn't have happened. But there's literally nothing that can change that. I just felt sorry for her. I did too. And I'm not, and I think for, even as a non-religious person, I think forgiveness can be a powerful tool. And yes. I'm not saying Lisa should just stand up. I'm not telling Lisa to forgive. No way. That's, it's Lisa's life and it's Lisa's choice to make that decision. I just felt so bad for her and what she's been through and how this has changed her. You know, there's the whole like forgive and forget. I feel like I'm throwing out cliches, but no one expects you to forgive someone who killed someone that you love. You're never going to forget that. The assumption is once he's dead that she can move on. But that's not true. Mm. You can never forget that that happened. Right. Even if you are somehow able to forgive in some way, which is not deserved, I don't think, because there was never any remorse, you still can never forget that that happened. Are we ready for number six? Epilogue. The urgency of life. I don't like the artsy-fartsy thing. So we're back with Melissa. Not that girl that falls in love with an inmate. Oh, our favorite. Our favorite. Talking about death row groupies. She's talking about how she just doesn't understand these women who are like these death row groupies. How there's this man, you may remember the case, but there's this, they mentioned this man who's on, who's in prison at this time for having killed his wife and young child or pregnant wife and how he's getting like 200 letters a day. She's obviously following, she knows what's happening in this world of like people talking to inmates, but she still is somehow separating herself from them. Not that girl that falls in love with an inmate. Possibly because she is Jason's wife. She's put herself at a different level. She's not a groupie. She had a relationship. (laughs) She has a relationship. Werner asks her, you guys get ready. This is another sweet one, okay? Describe him to us, please. Like physically? Yes. You only have touched his hand. Describe his hands to us. And she gets a little embarrassed. And she's (laughs) like, do you mean physically? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, what is he? What is he like to you? And this part is actually really sweet. And you forget for a second what you're watching because she talks about how his hands are very big. The only part of him she had touched at one point were his hands. And like the first time they ever touched, all they could do was hold hands. And that his hand is so much bigger that it envelops her hand. And she talks, she talks about that for a very long time. You can really tell that she really cares about him. She may be a tad obsessed with him, but she really does like have extraordinarily strong feelings, right? She's talking about all of that. She talks about how, you know, when they got married, I don't even think they were able to touch each other. But since they got married, then they can hug. He can give her a kiss at the beginning of an end of every meeting but then they can sit across the table and they can hold hands and that's the extent of their physical contact they've never been alone in a room together they have never had sex yeah okay jason said he wants 50 kids and she wants like two they've started that process 
So she won't say how she got pregnant, so Werner outlines it for her. Correct me if I miss any of this, because I just wrote pregnant really big in my notes. He basically says, I know there is this kind of underground contraband exchange, like hidden, where you can get things into prison. He's like, so one could assume that there's possibly ways to get things out of prison. (laughs) And she just gets this coy little grin on her face. And she says, we prefer to tell people that I was artificially inseminated. She turkey basted his semens up in her. Somehow somebody snuck his jizz out of the prison. Yeah. And she just stuck it up in there and it worked. She got pregnant. I think he got it out through a guard's mouth. Oh, sure. I'm sorry, America. You should be. You should be. Sorry. But she holds up an ultrasound picture of Easton... Aaron Burkett. But we go out on Fred Allen. Uh, he talks about the dash on a tombstone. You got the year, the year you were born and then the year you die and the dash in the middle. And he says, how are you going to live your dash? That's the most important part. And the movie ends dedicated to Lisa, Charles, and the families. Victims of violent crime. And that's this film, Into the Abyss by Werner Herzog. Our first dun, 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 dun. of Herzog Month. So we start a little early because we love Werner Herzog. And it's been a lot of fun watching a bunch of Werner Herzog movies and discussing. <laughs> now, Angela, we don't we don't rate things in a star rating scale. No, never, ever. Why? That sounds like more of a Mer- Morgan Spurlock thing to do. He would rate it in Big Macs. As you can imagine, <laughs> we rate, especially Werner Herzog movies. Can you rate Werner Herzog movies in Werner Herzog's? And are you allowed to give it less than a five? Are we setting a tone here? I don't know. But anyway, but yeah, we're going to rate this film in our Herzog rating system. And you're going to go first. Okay. I'm going to give this movie one through five Herzogs. You're going to give it one through five Herzogs. Then we will join them for best out of 10 Herzogs. This movie really represents the web of a community and how a horrible action over a fucking car. There's so many Stories of people strung out on addiction uh, with addictive troubles who get in all kinds of trouble. This is over a fucking car. Three people lost their lives over a car. And how this reverberates throughout this community. This cycle of pain. The horridness of the act just does not stop at the day where people are killed or where they find bodies or when the family first discovers that they've lost their loved ones. It just goes on seemingly indefinitely. I felt very connected. You know, I hear that accent and I'm like, I know these people. I've known people just like this throughout my life. I've laughed with these people. I've been scared of these kind of people. There's something very personal that strikes within me when I watch this movie. And I'm pretty much with Werner in terms of how he feels about the death penalty. This is a sad movie. Mm -hmm. Unless you're just like so pro death penalty, you might think this is a party movie. I don't know. But uh, I don't know where you stand on it. But I, I would hard, find it hard to celebrate because you see a lot of sufferings of individuals. It seems very hard to celebrate something like that. We don't see the actual execution. They may not have allowed the, the camera in. It's very much focused 
on the community and how this affects them. And and I feel like it's a very important film. And it really moved me quite a bit. Can you give a Herzog movie less than five Herzogs? I don't think you can. I don't know. I think I... I'm trying to think of an aspect of it that is a little imperfect. I don't I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means with this movie. Yeah. I don't know if it's the best Werner Herzog movie because I'm making my way through all of them, but it's one that it's good mm-hmm. and seemingly important and one that it seems like people should watch. I guess I'm going to give this five Herzogs. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I agree. I'm also going to give this film five Herzogs. I was also very affected by this movie every part of it the people now dealing with it the people then dealing with it the way he interviews people the way he tells the story going back and forth between the different pieces it's all so effective in the way that you get to know these characters their parts in this horrific story even going so far as to interview Jason's dad, meeting Charles in that park wherever they were on that picnic bench. I think it's really great. And like I said, he is, aside from Errol Morris, who also does it very well, person that I can listen to speaking to, speaking on their own documentary. So five. I give it five. I agree. It's something that people should watch. I don't, I don't know if it's something to be excited about, but we have a perfect documentary. <laughs> Yes. 10 out of 10, Into the Abyss by Werner Herzog. You can follow us on our social media networks at Documenteers. We got a Facebook fan page, a Twitter that I barely know how to use, uh, an Instagram that's a bit more popping. It's very important to us that you give us five stars and a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. That helps other film appreciators out there, especially lovers of Werner Herzog, know where to go. If they want some hot dog talk. And we've had plenty of people give five stars in a review. And we very much appreciate it. And I just want all those who gave us five stars in a review to let them know that I'll smuggle your sperm out of a prison with my mouth. (laughs) We can also plan out the details of that through email at documenteerspodcast at gmail.com. You can contact me personally there, and I'd love some recommendations if you have any, or praise for us or any of the co-hosts that appear on this show. But that is that, Into the Abyss by Werner Herzog, a perfect documentary. Stay sweet, Angela. Always. And keep on docking. I don't like the artsy-fartsy thing. (laughs) Michael Perry, I wish you all the best. Yes, thank you.